In preparing today's lesson on the eve of our youth conference, I thought it would be good to peruse some concepts regarding children, youth, and our desire to turn them into competent, mature, biblical Christian adults. Now, this is not an easy task, and so what we're going to explore today are some ideas that I have that I think are useful and I hope will be a blessing for you to consider, but is by no means, this is by no means a comprehensive study. Some time ago, a question was asked, why did Roman Catholic churches do such a good job in establishing private Christian, or shall we say, private Catholic schools all over this land? In the second half of the 1800s and the early 1900s, the Roman Catholics were assiduously disciplined in establishing a Roman Catholic school within each parish. Why did they do that? And the answer is because the public schools were so Protestant. It is not that the public schools were secular. In fact, it was the opposite. Now, that's hard for us to believe now. But if you roll the clock back to 1880 or to 1900 or even 1920 or even 1940, 1950, the public schools of this nation were across the board, state by state, Protestant. In most schools, not only did you pray, but they offered Bible classes. Every day, most public schools in 1910 or 1940 had a Bible class. And many high schools in many states, bearing in mind that until about 1960, the federal government had little or no impact on education whatsoever. That is a modern phenomenon, and education was managed state by state. But in those days, the public schools were inherently Protestant and taught Protestant doctrine to their students across the board. And the Roman Catholics were afraid of this. They didn't want their little children turning into Protestants. So they had to open up their own Catholic schools. We've come a long way. So all of us now are faced with a different reality. We know that guiding children through adolescence into godly mature adulthood has always been hard. It's never been easy. It's always been hard in every generation and every time. But what's different is that if we roll the clock back a century or so, public institutions aided this process. Public schools aided this process. It's hard to believe, but they aided the process. Now, of course, they undermine that process dramatically, which leaves parents in a peculiar and an unpleasant condition. The homeschooling movement beginning in the 1980s and growing in the 90s and in the years following was largely because the public schools had become so secular and were undermining Christian values so dramatically. But homeschooling is very difficult. And homeschooling is a unique challenge. Now, I'm all in favor of parents homeschooling their children as they wish. But homeschooling is not a perfect solution either. 
homeschooling has unique challenges that have been um, revealed as the decades have passed in which parents are equipped but are not perfectly equipped. Some parents are better equipped than others. And that is simply a harsh reality in guiding children toward learning everything they need to know. Now, the Christian school movement has been a good help, but the Christian school movement had its own set of challenges. Essentially, what we're looking at, though, as, a, as churchmen, as Christians, as believers in the Bible, as people who advocate for a biblical worldview, we've got a mighty challenge ahead of us. And the nuclear family cannot always do it alone. In fact, the nuclear family, that is father, mother, and children by themselves, is, is an organic reality, and it is good, but it is somewhat mm, artificial in the sense that the nuclear family was never meant to function completely on its own, independent, without structures around it without the institutions of a larger family, an extended family, a clan, and and, and beyond that, a church community, which may or may not include a school. Restoring all these things is a big challenge. So our study today is, is is an effort to begin to look at how we can restore some of this. Now again, this is not a comprehensive lesson in this area. This is, this is simply a, a, a set of eclectic thoughts that have been percolating through my mind over the last week that I thought might be of value for us to consider as we think about this great challenge about turning children into adults. And everyone has a vested interest. Obviously, parents have a great vested interest in this. But grandparents have a vested interest. Everyone who is not a parent has a vested interest in the families that you know. And as has been said from this pulpit many, many times, the future rests with our children, and the future is becoming the present rather rapidly. And we cannot rest easy at any time. And so let's begin to look at some of the ideas that I'd like to share with you, and uh, we'll see what, I, what I've got, got here for you. Let's begin with this. I want to share with you some ideas about what biblical adulthood looks like. What does biblical adulthood look like? And what are the roles that each of us should fulfill? Now, that's very hard to summarize as well. So I've got three simple points that I am hoping will sort of encapsulate some of the most important biblical roles and biblical concepts in a very broad, broad sense that what we ought to be aiming for. What is a biblical adult like? So let's begin with this. Number one, the beginning point. All of us are meant to be lords and ladies over God's creation and all the creatures in it. We're meant to be lords and ladies over God's creation. This is sometimes called the dominion mandate. And we could read from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 9, it is somewhat repeated, in which God told our ancestors that they were to take dominion of the earth, over the fish, the fowl, the sea. He created man his own image, male and female. He created them, blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, etc., etc. Take dominion over the earth. We are meant to rule the earth. We are meant to rule the planet. This is in contrast, of course, to the environmentalists. Okay, They believe that 
the earth was there and man is just another critter on earth and we may be a good one or maybe a bad one. Maybe we should be eliminated. But it's really the reverse. The earth was created for us. The earth was created for us in the sense that a house is built for the people to live in the house. And the people in the house are the masters of the house. And they can, they can take care of the house well or not so well. The earth is ours to take dominion of. It was created for us. Not we for the earth. So we are meant to be lords and ladies over God's creation and all the creatures in it. Now how is this manifested? Well, boys and girls manifest this differently. Now boys begin with tree forts. And they gradually move up the line to homes and businesses as they take dominion of the earth. Boys tend to specialize in things, both things in the material world and things and ideas in the more abstract world. So a typical conversation among boys and young men might be topics that ladies might find a little dull, but they're dominion-oriented about what they're building or about economics and things of this nature that most men find rather fascinating. And ladies roll their eyes and say, boy, I'm, let's move on to something more interesting to talk about. <laughs> Girls, on the other hand, of course, begin innately, typically, not always, but typically with dolls and things of this nature. And then they graduate as the years and the decades pass. Of course, they graduate and many become mothers and then grandmothers. And by toward the end of their life, they are matriarchs over a clan. And as a matriarch, they have considerable influence. The considerable influence over the many people involved in that clan and all the activities that are going on. Girls, of course, ladies specialize in relationships. Less on the things and more on the relationships of people and what's going on as those people interact one with another. And their conversations around a potluck table reflect that. <laughs> but in either case, we are meant to have dominion over God's creation. We are also... And there's another area here. We're also meant to be givers of wise advice. We're meant to be givers of wise advice. Now, this requires much knowledge combined with much time. Knowledge and time. Knowledge is not enough because knowledge by itself puffs, puffeth up, as Scripture tells us. And without time... The knowledge tends alone tends to breed cockiness, and many a smart and high IQ young person has been noted to display that quality. It becomes somewhat muted as the decades pass. It's not that they've lost IQ points, they've just recognized that there's so much more that has to be learned and the world is a little more complicated than what it first appeared when you were 22 versus 52 or 62. But this requires much knowledge with much time combined. 
And, and Scripture talks about the importance of knowledge. Um, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us to sh- show thyself approved by studying. Study to show thyself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. It also tells us in verse 16 to shun profane and vain babblings. It takes discernment to discern between a vain babbling and what's something that might be true. Vain babbling doesn't announce itself as such. It usually comes labeled as truth. So how do you know if it's vain babbling or if it's true? Well, it takes wisdom. And all this takes much time to cultivate and develop. And there are more passages we can talk about here regarding the the importance of acquiring knowledge. And over time, then that knowledge uh, becomes wisdom, and we can be dispensers of that advice that is worthy. Now, next, of course, we are meant to be legacy builders. Now, building a legacy is going to take time. Legacy builders don't do so in a decade or even two, or maybe even three. Now, this is a bit of a mystery. But the Bible speaks of God's glory, and it speaks of the role of the male in an interesting way here. Men, it seems, after a long and godly life, reflect God's glory. After a long and godly life, men reflect God's glory. Now, Proverbs 20, verse 29 says this, The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is the gray head. Oh. And in Proverbs 31, that describes the godly woman, it also mentions her husband in verse 23 when it says, He's, He is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now these are legacy comments. These are legacy verses. And for men that might be an excellent legacy and one that men can aspire to as the decades pass. Now, women, after a long and godly life, they're going to reflect the glory of the man. Now, 1 Corinthians eleven seven is an interesting verse, and it's a little bit mysterious, but I'll read it. It's an interesting... I don't really have time to explore this chapter. It's a difficult chapter, but verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 11... It says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and the glory of God. Man is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Now that's an interesting concept here. But women, after a long and godly life, they're going to reflect the glory of the man. And the man, after a long and godly life, reflects God's glory. And back in Proverbs 31... It speaks of this great and noble lady who is going to be praised by her children and others at the end of a long and godly life. So these are some of the things that biblical adulthood are going to look like. We're going to be, at one point in our life, children and youth are going to be brought up so that one day they'll be lords and ladies in dominion. They'll one day become givers of wise advice They'll one day be building legacies, and they'll reflect the glory of God. Now, how do we get children and youth to that noble status? Now, this is going to take a lot. 
It's going to take a lot of dedication on the part of parents. And I believe it's going to really take a church community as well. Absent of which, parents are at a great disadvantage. Now, what is it that youth need? All right, so let's begin by starting with this particular point. One of the key features of responsible adulthood can be really summed up in, my, in, in one word. It's not a new word to you. This is probably not a brand new concept, but I must get this out on the table quickly and, and, and hear it near the beginning of this discussion. Youth and young people must assume responsibility in order to mature into godly adults. They must assume responsibility. Responsibility is a great watchword for young people becoming godly and mature adults. Now, false maturity accepts responsibility for success. Well, who doesn't accept responsibility for success? (laughs) Success has many parents, and disaster is an orphan, it is sometimes said. Well, false maturity only accepts responsibility for successes in life. But true maturity accepts responsibility in all matters. All matters. True responsibility says, I am responsible for the successes and for the disappointments as well. That's hard. That's hard. But that's what responsibility is about. Now, going along with that is kind of an an ironic concept here, but it seems to be true. It seems that authority naturally flows to those who can admit fault when wrong. Authority naturally flows in that direction. And why is that? Well, it's because (laughs) those that can admit fault when wrong build trust. People will say, I can trust that person. Because they can admit their error. Now, none of us like to admit error. It always strikes at our pride. But an inability to ever admit error undermines trust, which in turn means that people will not naturally place their confidence and trust in you, and authority will flow away from you rather than toward you. Now, there's another area that's important to grow in responsibility, and that's having a wide base of knowledge and skills. Now, I've I've spoken on this before, and it needs to be emphasized. A wide base of knowledge and skills prevents the problem of what is sometimes called narrow competence. Narrow competence. Look, everyone likes a competent man. If you need something repaired you need your refrigerator repaired, you want a man who is competent at appliances. Hopefully, as the years pass, the refrigerator repairman is competent in other things as well. There are a thousand problems in life that need repairing. Some of them are things. Some of them are relationships. Some are big and complicated problems involving people and relationships and economics and politics and religion and philosophy and ideas. And those are hard problems. And it requires an enormous amount 
of knowledge to be able to grapple with those problems requires a lot of knowledge to grapple with many areas of life. Now, as adults, we want to grow and we want our children to have the sense that they're going to be lifelong learners and that they're going to be good, we hope, at more than one thing. We're going to have not narrow competence, but broadly competent. And the greater and more breadth that they've got in competence and knowledge and skills, the more valuable they're going to be as adults that can handle responsibility and leadership. Now, th that's sort of all basic stuff. Next, we need to em emphasize another item that I think has been lost in our time. To, an older, to older folks, this is really natural, simple, and automatic. To younger, to the generation that is coming on now in modern times, I guess Generation Z is what they call that generation now, this is uh, somewhat lost to them. But the willingness to embrace all types of hard labor is essential to godly adulthood. All right, you've got to be willing to uh, embrace all types of hard labor. This is essential to godly adulthood. Now, work came before the fall. In Genesis 2.15, prior to the fall, God told Adam to dress and keep the garden. And if you look at that and reflect a little bit on it, you understand that this involved labor and work. The curse that came in the fall is not labor and work. It is labor and work that is harder than ever before. Labor and work was more productive before the thorns and the thistles and the curse of the ground. Now, the work and labor is far more difficult but work and labor in and of itself is not a curse and it is not to be avoided. So work came before the fall. Now youth, for young people, this is the time to learn hard physical work. Hard physical work. This is where it really ought to begin. And it ought to begin with children who are rather young. Even children who are, as soon as they're able to handle and manipulate a few tools... They should begin to learn hard physical work at, I don't know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, certainly by 11 or 12. They're old enough to begin to embrace hard physical work. All young people should know what calluses are. They should know what a callus is, not by what they've seen on the hands of their father or their mother. They should know what calluses are by seeing their own blisters. All young people should embrace hard work. And so for young lads, when they're 9, 10, 11, and 12, they should be learning how to use a shovel. And young ladies should be learning how to bend over and pull weeds and all the things that go along with managing certain types of hard physical labor that's so gender appropriate. Now, this is really important. It's an important feature that is somewhat lost. Now, this is, this is not lost on the past generations. If we go to my parents, they, they just grew up that way. I mean, we all have heard stories out of the Great Depression from previous generations that, the, you know, the, the times were tough and food was scarce. And by seven or eight or nine, you were working. 
And you worked and you worked and you worked. And so they grew up that way. But this has been lost. And so we, this is something we've got to restore. And it's not easy to restore if you don't do it with intent. Because we don't worry about will we actually go hungry if our garden doesn't turn out well. Our grandparents may have worried about that, though. Now, it turns out that young people can work harder than they think. Lamentations 3.27 has a great verse. (laughs) Uh, Let me just read this into the record, make sure I get it right. Lamentations 3.27 goes like this. It said, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It is good for a man. So for young men who are still physically strong, and for teenage boys who think they're young men, and for even younger boys whose bodies are growing in strength, they should bear the yoke. And they need to learn what calluses are and learn hard physical work. And they can work harder than they think. So when they say, I'm tired and my back is sore, I need a drink, it's time to go sit in the shade, you say, well, may, okay, you get, well, take your 30 seconds, get your drink, then come back to work. <laughs> you work and you, you deny the body. The body says, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm exhausted. And you say, work anyway. Keep working. Do not stop. <laughs> that is the lesson that they must learn. And that is the lesson that's been lost in our time. And that's an important feature to restore. So, and it's not going to, like I say, I don't think it's going to be easily restored if we don't do so with intent. Because we have so much that's labor-saving now that we have lost the sense of the value that comes to the soul and the spirit, the mind and the emotions and the internal uh, virtues that come from hard work, hard physical labor. But it's not just hard physical labor. Let's continue. It turns out there's another type of labor that is very similar, and that is intellectual work. Intellectual work. Now, let me comment on this. It turns out that intellectual work requires the same type of self-denial. Intellectual work requires the same type of self-denial. It turns out that young people can study harder than they think. Now, as a teacher, I've seen this a lot. And I remember experiencing a few episodes when I was a, a child myself, a young person myself. I remember when I was a teenager and I wanted to get my driver's permit, I was given a, what I thought was a pretty thick book that I was supposed to learn about. It was, you know, 50 or 60 pages. And you got to learn all these things. So I kind of breezed through it, went and took my test and failed. I was embarrassed. So I buckled down and worked. Took it the second time and I passed with flying colors. Well, I learned what I needed to, I learned a lesson there. Sometimes you have to study. In fact, study is not easy. Study is work. Study is a lot of work. Now, young people can study harder than they think they can. Now, when it comes to uh, books and study, you know, there's a couple of passages I could turn to, but one, there, here's one colorful one, one interesting one. Near the end of Ecclesiastes, we have these interesting comments by our, our good friend Solomon, we presume was the writer of Ecclesiastes, and he says something like this near the end in Ecclesiastes 12.12. 12, he says, 
My son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Well, it is a weariness of the flesh. It's a different type of weariness of the flesh. But it is, and it is something also that needs to be mastered. It needs to be something that you grow in discipline with, just like someone who grows in discipline and keeps on working at physical labor when their body says they're tired and they keep going, so does the person who is supposed to study. They discipline themselves and they keep on studying. So what do I mean by that? How many times have I heard a young person say something like this to me? I've read the rules and I've looked at the examples and I don't understand it. And they think, well, okay, that's it. Well, what they should do, and I tell them, is read it again. Study it again. And after the second time, you still don't understand it. Well, read it a third time. In fact, keep reading that paragraph until you do understand it. If you don't understand the first sentence, stop and read it again and read it again and read it again until you understand it. And if you don't understand the words, then you get a dictionary and you look up the words. So you understand the words, you can understand the first sentence, and then you go to sentence number two. And then you go to sentence number three. And finally, you understand the entire paragraph. And you say, well, that's going to take a long time. Yes. Indeed. indeed. So does digging a ditch with a shovel take a long time. But you keep at it. You don't expect after three or four spades, this is hard. The ground is hard. I'm just going to quit. No, you keep at it. You get the bar, you get the pick, and you keep on digging. And you get the same type of tools when you're faced with an intellectual challenge. You study, and you read the example again, and again, and again. Now, that's the difference between someone who is intellectually accomplished and someone who is not. It is work. And you get tired. Your brain gets weary. And your back gets tired because you've hunched over the book. So you don't quit. You stand up for 30 or 40 seconds and you stretch and you get a drink and then you come back and you do it again. Now, that's intellectual work. And it's work. And those that have struggled with these kinds of things understand that. And we need to not shy away from that. And pretend that physical work is one thing and intellectual work, that's not really work. That's work. It is work as well. And that kind of mastery needs to be the kind of mastery that, 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 that we aspire to and we push our children to so that we can become broadly knowledgeable and skilled in all the areas of life that are before us that we might need to know. And I remind you, you don't know what you need to know when you're young. You might think, I don't need to know this. You may. And in fact, you may be limited because you don't know it. The more you know, the more options you have for your future. Daniel tells us that Daniel studied. Daniel chapter 9, it says, He knew because he studied when the 70 years would be accomplished and the children of Israel, the children of Judah, could return home to Jerusalem from Babylon. Now, the fruit of hard physical and intellectual labor is self-respect. The fruit of that is self-respect. 
Now, self-respect is never earned. It's never given. And it builds something precious. Confidence. Self-respect is earned. It's not given. And it builds confidence. And that's what we want in our young people. We want them to be confident. I can do that hard thing because I've done other hard things. I can master and solve this problem. I know it's hard. I, there's there's got to be a solution because I've solved other hard problems that I could not immediately see the solution. But I've muddled through. <laughs> and I figured it out after much work and effort and intellectual effort. So I can solve this problem too. That's confidence. All right, so let's leave that area in terms of labor. And let's go to something else that youth need. Now, this is an area that, <laughs> that I, I don't know that this area is something that has been discussed much before. And I don't know that I've really thought deeply about this before. But it's something I think is important and worthy of, of some consideration. And it's not something that I know that I'm, I'm confident that I've ever gotten really right in my life. But I'd like to share it with you today. Godly adults, godly adults know that fighting to win is sometimes necessary. Godly adults know that fighting to win is sometimes necessary. Now there are those who God has naturally given them a bit of a fighting spirit, and there are those who God has naturally given them the sense of a peacemaker. Both are virtues. But that's not exactly what I'm talking about, though. All of us should strive to be peacemakers when it is appropriate. And all of us should have a fighting spirit when that is appropriate. And rightly dividing all of this may not always be easy to do. But let me get a few preliminary thoughts as we explore this area. When we deal with our young people and we want to train them and teach them and by example guide them, Number one, as our beginning point here, it's important that we never fight for light or trivial reasons, such as protecting our own pride or for personal retaliation. Now, we only need to go as far as the Sermon on the Mount to get a little bit of advice in this area. Now, of course, you're going to recognize these words, but I'll read them because they're important as our beginning point, as, our, as kind of a, a foundational thought so that we don't get into fights for light and trivial reasons and foolish reasons involving our own pride. In Matthew 5, beginning at verse 38, Jesus says, You've heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's retaliation. But I say unto you, he says, in verse 39, that she resists not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee in thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Thou have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And we've all heard those verses a number of times. 
But those are the words of Jesus. And when it comes to the thought, well, should I fight or not fight? Let's not forget those words. Or if you'd like something a little more practical, we could go to the words of Paul. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter number 4, gives us another sense. I don't think Jesus was known for fistfights. And I don't think Paul was known for fistfights. <laughs> Ephesians 4, <laughs> verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, "...with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." So Paul tries and strives for the bond of peace and unity with lowliness, long-suffering, and meekness, forbearing one another. Paul and Jesus weren't quick to whip out the fisticuffs. Now, more importantly than even this, we need to talk briefly about anger. Anger should never be the driving force in our response to stress. And this is exceedingly important. Because anger is an exceedingly common problem. It is one of the most common problems in marriages that dissolve and break up. Anger. And the inability to control anger and respond appropriately in moments of stress. Proverbs 22:24 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Proverbs 29, 22. It says, an angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 9. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Let me read a passage in the New Testament. And this is an illustration from the life of Jesus. Now, anger in and of itself may not be a problem in and of itself isolating it let me just let's just read turn with me to mark if you'd like to in mark chapter 3 we have a story of jesus it's going to tell us that jesus became angry but you're going to also notice that anger wasn't the driving emotion in his response all right so let's read a little short story about jesus and some anger that he that he was present it tells us it was in mark 3 1 says that Jesus entered into a synagogue and there was a man that had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man that had the withered hand, Stand forth! Come up, come up here. Let me look at that hand more closely. And then Jesus saith to them, that is those, the leaders of the synagogue that were the Pharisees, and eager to accuse him. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day, to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. They didn't know what to say. They weren't sure what to say. And then verse 5. Here's the key. And when he had looked around on them with anger, Jesus was angry at their hard-heartedness. It says he being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Now, the problem isn't necessarily anger all the time. The problem is how do we, what do we do with that anger? 
and how do we respond? And we discovered that Jesus did not respond, allow the anger to drive him to some sort of a rash and ridiculous and foolish response. And we get the sense quite clearly that the follow-up emotion of grief is the one that motivated Jesus rather than just landing on the anger and, and responding in some sort of a conflict. So what is anger? What, what, what do we do with our anger? And what about this? What about this business about fighting? Because I've said, I've already stated now that godly adults know that fighting to win is sometimes necessary. Now, I don't know if I have perfect answers here, but let me give you what I think might be a good rule of thumb. And that is this. It's dealing with justice. Now, a fight, and there are different types of fights. It might be little boys with their fists. I suppose occasionally, on rare occasions, even men with their fists. Probably not as frequently as we might sometimes imagine if you're a person who likes to watch westerns. <laughs> What's a Western without a couple of good fist fights, right? <laughs> but a fight, in a sense, is a public act that's designed to restore justice to those who are oppressed. And there are, of course, many other ways that we may need to fight. We may need to fight in terms of a, in a legal action in a courtroom with an attorney. We may need to fight in other ways. Of course, there's, there's a, on rare occasions, there's war. But a fight is a public act, and it's designed to restore justice to someone who is oppressed. Now, if you have a heart for someone who is oppressed, that's good. That's right. That's proper. The Old Testament has many, many condemnations of the leaders of ancient Israel who lost their warm heart toward those who were oppressed. So if you have a heart for the oppressed and you become angry because someone who is oppressed is not receiving justice, that's good, right, and noble. And you don't want to necessarily suppress that sense that has risen up within you. A fight is necessary when there's no other means to restrain a bully or a tyrant. Bullies and tyrants aren't interested in justice. They're interested in power alone that gratifies their own spirit. But we're interested in justice according to God's divine concept of justice. Now, I don't know if you're going to get this right, and I don't know if I've gotten this right very well in my adult life, or even in my adolescent life. There is one story I, I recall, though, that gives me it gives an illustration of how you get a bit of a sense of justice, and sometimes you, you just say, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to give it a whirl. I remember once when I was, I was 12, my parents gave me the privilege of sending me off to a two-week 4-H camp in the mountains. So here I was in 4-H camp in the mountains with a couple hundred other kids in Colorado. And we were there for two weeks. Now, this is the late 1970s. It would have been about 1977 or somewhere right in there, 1976. So times were a little different. Just to give you an illustration how different they were, at that 4-H camp, one of, the, one of the early activities they did during that two weeks is they brought out rifles and took us all to the rifle range, and we shot guns. No parents were around. No certificates were signed. No waivers. 
they just handed out 22s to a bunch of 12-year-olds, lined us all up and said, there's the target. And we started popping off. So times were different. During the course of that week, there was a bully. His name was Carl Nash. I've probably told this story a time or two. Julie, do you remember this story? <laughs> Carl Nash picked on me and my friends for two weeks straight. He was about 17. And I, like I say, my friends and I, we were about 12. And he came over to our cabin. Our cabin was called Spruce. The cabins were named after trees. Well, I was in Spruce. And he came over to Spruce and he watched for me and some of my friends. And as we came and, go, came and went... He would pick on us in different ways. He was a bully all week long. Carl Nash picked on us, his big kid, big high school kid. Well, we looked at for many opportunities to get back at Carl Nash, but we never really had a good chance until the last day. Now, the last day of camp is special because you're coming up when the camp director has very little leverage to punish you. He can't send you home because we're at the last day. He can't give you kitchen patrol for the next day because we're going home anyway. So our opportunity came on the last afternoon in which there was going to be scheduled a great big water fight with water balloons. And the counselors, Carl Nash included, would dress up in costumes. Carl Nash, <clears throat> he decided to dress up as a girl. And he put on his head some sort of a mop. And he put under his shirt a couple of water balloons to enhance his look like a female. So here's Carl Nash prancing around the campground with water balloons under his shirt. And my friends and I thought, this is our chance. And so we launched a little plan. Who's going to take on Carl Nash? So I did. I volunteered, and I took a pencil, and when Carl Nash wasn't looking, I came up and I popped those two water balloons that were posing as bosoms. And I got my, we, we thought, we are establishing justice against a tyrant. <laughs> and I got beat up badly. I, I'll never forget, he took me off behind a tree and rubbed my face in the dirt and pounded me good. But it was worth it. <laughs> the rest of the day, I, I was like a, I, I was, I was never been so popular in my entire life <clears throat> as, as, the, as the little David who took down Carl Nash, this great Goliath. Of course, in those days, again, Times were different. Nobody presumed that there was something wrong with Carl Nash when he decided to dress up like a girl. That was just having fun. Nobody thought this is bizarre. It was, just, it was just something fun. So I don't know if, if that little sense of justice that I was bringing forth as a 12-year-old was right or proper or in balance. But there is, there is a time in which there is a sense that each of us may have when we sense that justice needs to be restored and somebody needs to step up to the plate and take on the Goliath of our time, the Goliath of the situation, that person who is the bully or the tyrant. To restrain 
when all other opportunities for restraint had failed. Now, boys play at war often. That is not bad. Boys who play at war are training in something that men might be called to do. Athletic competition is actually quite good in this area. Athletic competition is essentially mock war. And it's a training ground for learning emotional restraint while maintaining maximum effort. Let me give you another illustration. Those who've been in competitive athletics know exactly what I'm going to, talk, going to explain to you. To maintain emotional restraint while sustaining and maintaining maximum effort is not easy to do. So I had the opportunity to play basketball when I was young. And one of the things you learn as the game goes along and as, peep, as the tension in the game continues, in the case of basketball, you're very close to your competitor. You're right on top of me. You're bumping shoulders and elbows the entire game. And as the game becomes tense and as the people grow weary, you discover there's one way to take out an opponent who is better than you. And that's make him angry. Or rather, get him to lose his emotional self-control. And so by little tricks of little nudges, stepping on his foot or elbowing him in such a way or doing this and that, you can, or by certain talents and skills, dealing with head fakes and so forth and so on, you can cause your opponent to foul you and foul out of the game because he loses his emotional self-control. And in losing the emotional self-control, he's not able to maintain maximum effort. And that is a success on your part in taking down your opponent. Now, it's an important skill to master in life because there's many types of conflict. And the conflict may require you to maintain your emotional control and not let anger rule you while you maintain a maximum effort. Men are designed to fight for a larger social order. Women are designed to fight for their brood. Fight for their brood. You see this in nature. The proverbial mama bear protecting her cub is completely natural and wholesome. And women are the same. They're innately designed to fight for their brood and to protect that and to deal with injustice. In fact, you see some of that today as some of the, some of the, the woke culture pushes forward in our society. Oddly enough, as it pushes into homes and families, you see rising up mothers, women, because they sense now that their brood is in danger. Now, there's another important element of this. Winning is important. Now, it, should, it really goes without saying, or it should go without saying, but it needs to be said in our culture, in our time, as we think about young people, and we think about how to train them to become godly adults, they need to understand that there is points in competition. And sometimes winning is actually very important. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul just writes this in passing to make another comment. And make, he's really making another point. 
But he's using a race to illustrate this, an athletic race to illustrate his point. And Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So there's many runners and one winner. There's one winner. The goal of the competition is to win. And when you take away the incentive to win, the competition loses its value, and it's of no sense. It's nonsense. So sometimes winning is important, which is why a fight needs to be entered into with thoughtfulness, not casualness, because when you enter a fight, you should enter the war, you enter the fight to win. Now that's something intuitively on a large scale, something you and I don't control, and we're not likely to, but on a large scale, our own nation, we once understood this when we went to war. When you go to war, the object is to win. The object is to destroy the enemy's ability to resist, which means you kill. That's what war is. It's organized murder. And that's why it's entered into with only the greatest of thoughtfulness. But when you enter, you enter to win. Now, when we enter wars, we have all kinds of other motives. Profit, promotion, who knows what the motives might be. But winning is not necessarily the prime objective anymore. And thus we don't win, and thus we have all kinds of confusion and catastrophe. Now, the egalitarian notion that all who compete should get a prize, in my view, is basically nonsense. All who compete should get a prize, I think that's nonsense. It's teaching our children something wrong, something bad, something, in, something that is not useful. Because that's not the way the real world is. And they need to understand the hardness of the real world the toughness of the real world. Such thinking prepares us to pretend that losing is fine. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, but in the real world it does matter if you win or lose. In real life, it's not fine to lose. We do not want to pretend that losing is just as good as winning. Now, I'm not here to discuss, really go into the whole area of sportsmanlike conduct. Because we understand that in friendly competition, there is gracious winners, which we all ought to be. <laughs> and if you don't win, well, don't pout. You can try again. There'll be another game. We set the chess pieces up, and we'll try again. We have to understand that fighting to win is sometimes necessary. And this is a hard rule of life that young people need to understand. Now, when we think about fighting and winning and the combat that we enter into, godly adults need to understand something else. And let's shift gears now. Let's shift gears to the spiritual as we conclude. Godly adults know that successful combat in the non-tangible world of thoughts and ideas is a prerequisite to winning in the physical world of politics, business, and war. Now let's get that right. In the real world, we have a lot of concerns 
in the area of politics, business, and war. Now, these are large things. Not all of us are dealing with politics and war. Many of us might be dealing in, in the competitive world of business. And we want to win there because you understand there's winning may matter. But we also need to understand, though, that this kind of combat that we're entering into, whatever type of combat it is, in the area of politics, business, and war, there is a spiritual element that precedes all of that. And we've got to get the spiritual element correct. We've got to get the spiritual element right. We have to understand it's a prerequisite to success in the physical world. So if we fail in the non-tangible world of thoughts and ideas, then we're not going to have the kind of success in the, in the physical world that we hope for. So, for example, and let me emphasize this now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it tells us, Paul writes, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty into the pulling down of strongholds. In Ephesians chapter number 6, Paul writes, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, rulers of darkness in this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. Now what we have to understand is that there are unseen spiritual realities that always drive the tangible side that we do see. And these unseen spiritual realities have to be mastered and they have to be in order first in order to have success when it comes to the type of conflict that we might have to enter into from time to time in life. And so if we don't have our spiritual priorities right, and if we think that we can enter into combat without having our spiritual priorities correct, we will fail. And any victory that we might achieve would be what might be called a pyrrhic victory, a hollow victory, one that's not a victory at all, as it turns out, because we are operating on invalid spiritual principles. Daniel chapter 10 has an interesting story. It tells us that Daniel was, was fasting and praying. And while he was waiting for an answer, many days went by. Three weeks, in fact. And finally, an angelic visitation occurred. And the angel said something interesting upon greeting Daniel. He said, I'm sorry that I'm three weeks late, but I got stopped. I had to fight against an evil angel, a great angel, evil angel that had the title the Prince of Persia. And it wasn't until Michael came to help me overcome the Prince of Persia was I finally able to come to you to deliver the message I have for you. Spiritual warfare is quite real. And if we don't understand that our spiritual warfare precedes the carnal side of life, of which we are a part, whether we wish to be or not, we live in a tangible physical world. If we don't understand, though, that the spiritual realities precede in importance the tangible physical realities of the world, then we're not going to achieve the success that we hope for. 
even if we do obtain what we believe is a victory. So understanding this reminds us, these these spiritual realities should remind us of the sovereignty of God, the complete sovereignty of God. I'd like to close with this concept. The sovereignty of God in all things undergirds and overarches everything. Now in Daniel chapter 4, you might recall another interesting story. It's a story of King Nebuchadnezzar. And you might think on this for a moment. It tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was strolling around the palace one day, and he was looking around his great city, reflecting on this massive empire he had built, and the glory and the power and the might. And he said, all of this I have done. What a great emperor I am. What a great and mighty king. What a ruler of the world I am. (laughs) And then it says, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom is departed from thee. And he instantly lost his mind. He went crazy. And for many, many days, he was eating grass like an ox. And as the many days finally wore through, and his sanity was eventually restored, Nebuchadnezzar came back. And then he said, At the time my reason returned unto me, for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. The great king Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way about the complete sovereignty of God. Now, most of us don't really struggle with the concept of the sovereignty of God. In fact, I don't think I've ever met a Christian who says, I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Yet I have met many who don't apply the sovereignty of God. In a practical sense, they don't believe in the sovereignty of God because consider the reverse. If God is completely sovereign, then no man is, nor ever can be. Does that make sense? If God is completely sovereign, then no man can be sovereign. No man ever has been sovereign. No man can be sovereign because the sovereignty belongs to God. And Psalm chapter 2 makes this very plain when it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, against his anointed, and they say, These kings say, Oh, let's break the bands asunder of God Almighty. Let's cast God's cords away from us. And then it says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh and have them in derision. And he'll speak to them in his wrath and his sore displeasure. Well, these are the lessons that I believe our young people need to learn as we grow toward adulthood. These are some of them. Again, not comprehensive. But as they strive toward biblical adulthood, we want to guide them and encourage them and, and impose certain things upon them. We want them to grow in maturity and responsibility. We want them to embrace all types of labor. 
We want them to learn that fighting occasionally is important, and when you fight, you fight to win. And we know that successful combat in this world only comes if the spiritual combat and the spiritual priorities are in order first to lay the undergirding for success in the world in which we live. So we'll have young people who can grow and take dominion of the earth and strive toward that which is good and noble in the world. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your time this morning. May God bless you.